Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we explore the impacts of news deserts and ghost newspapers, parts of the U.S. where there's either no local paper or where the local paper has been gutted and can no longer adequately cover the community. My guest is Dan Kennedy, professor in the School of Journalism at Northeastern University and a contributor to GBH News in Boston. real obviously interest in news deserts as a former journalist and someone who's watched and you too right who's watched our industry not be able to do what what it needs to do to help us keep our societies healthy i'd love to start by defining how you define the term news deserts as you're thinking about this problem i would almost say that a news desert would be the most extreme case that you can think of in which your community really isn't getting uh any coverage at all it's just as People who live in food deserts have a very hard time finding healthy food for themselves and their families. People who live in news deserts have a hard time finding the news and information they need to govern ourselves in a democracy. It came into much wider use a few years ago when Penelope Abernathy began doing her work at UNC, trying to track news deserts across the country. Penny Abernathy uses another term that I think probably describes many more places, and that is ghost newspaper. Places where, you know, you still have a newspaper, but the staffing is so minimal that they really can't get the job done. And I'll give you an example. In the medium-sized city that I live in, 58,000 people, five business districts, lots of diversity, news everywhere you can find it. Uh, We have a Gannett Weekly, and we have not had a full-time staff reporter since the fall of 2019. They do send stringers in to try to cover a few things, but that's the extent of it. So to me, that's a ghost newspaper. They're both massive issues, but the ghost newspaper issue is a big one because it's I'll take, for example, talking with my parents. They they live in the Sacramento area, and so their paper is the Sacramento Bee. And that, you know, like we're getting so sick of the Sacramento Bee. People get frustrated with their paper and sort of direct that frustration at the staff, at the reporters, when in reality, there are these massive cuts going on behind the scenes, and the staff's being cut, and the reporters have fewer resources. And so there's this sort of lack of goodwill or maybe this ill will toward newspapers and journalism in general which is difficult for the staff to manage. So I'd I'd love to dive in there and talk a little bit about the impacts of ghost newspapers and also how people are perceiving this. I see studies that show that people look to local news as still their most trusted source of news. And then you look under the hood, and generally what they're talking about is local TV news. And to me, that's not local news. That's regional news. They can't get out and cover city council meetings and planning board and zoning issues and all of the things that go into uh, community life. So what I'm really concerned about is more the hyperlocal end of this. And uh, it's something I've been tracking for years. I wrote a book about it in 2013 called The Wired City, which pointed to some possible solutions I'm getting back to that in a book that I'm working on with Ellen Clegg called What Works, where we're going to be looking at some projects around the country that are doing 
good work. Uh, but we see what the problem is. You know, people form Facebook groups to try to keep themselves informed about what's going on locally, or they get onto next door. Uh, I mean, I'm on these groups myself in our community. At best, what are we doing? We're asking each other questions. You know, why was there a helicopter over the lake the other day? Um, and at worst, they're passing rumors, uh, stirring up trouble over things that aren't actually true. And uh, there's really nobody to set them straight. Journalists, people doing journalism, do so with a set of journalistic procedures to help verify and fact check, which the general public, I mean, maybe random person number seven is good at that, but maybe not. And when you break it down and then rely on these, these neighborhood groups, Facebook groups and, and next door and all that are fantastic, but also not journalism. They're, they're something else. Well, that's right. And, you know, I mean, I tell my students, there's really no magic to journalism. The magic is that somebody is paying you to sit there for three hours and, and actually cover what's going on and to do it in a fair and fact-seeking manner. The problem with volunteers, I love volunteers, but they have to go out and make a living. They can't devote that kind of time to this. And that's really the difference between professional journalism and these various attempts to replicate it on Facebook and next door. It's not that the people are badly motivated. It's that they don't have the time to do this. Right. You can train people to do journalism, but you have to pay them. Yes, exactly. And so I definitely want to get to solutions because obviously that is the most important piece, but I, I really want to help everybody understand the problem first. You know, I, I was a journalist, became an academic, and sent my first grant proposal. So when we were talking in the proposal, we talked about news deserts. We started defining it as geographic news deserts and then demographic news deserts, too, because we were talking about uh, communities who maybe aren't getting the coverage or the attention. What do you mean by demographic news deserts? So, for example, Sonoma County is largely Caucasian, and there's a lot of wealth there. And so that is sort of what is seen. But there's a huge Latino population. There's a huge indigenous population. And they're just not quite seen or acknowledged or validated in a lot of ways. One of the things that really interests me are projects that actually bring together the different demographic groups that are taking up a certain geographic space. Let me tell you about one area, the New Haven Independent, uh, which is a nonprofit digital-only website that was founded in 2005. When I first visited them about a dozen years ago, you had an all-white staff covering a community that was heavily Black, heavily Latino, and they were finding ways to do a good job of it. But I think that they realized, I know that they realized that they needed to find ways of doing it better. So they actually launched a low-power FM radio station uh, that's part of the New Haven Independent. They also release everything as a podcast. And this has opened the doors to the community just coming in. It's just got this massive diversity that it didn't have the first time that I visited there. In addition to that, the staff of the New Haven Independent itself is more diverse than it used to be. And so what you have is rather than catering specifically to different demographic slices, you're bringing everybody together 
what they have in common is New Haven. And I just think that that is so incredibly important to overcoming the divisions and the polarization that is just ripping us apart as a society. Oh, I completely agree. And that's such an amazing example because what you said, what they have in common is New Haven. Now, maybe New Haven looks different to each of them, but then we get to discover that, right? Because we're talking with everybody. How's it doing? They are actually doing quite well, and they've always done quite well. I think that one of the keys to the independent, you sometimes hear... Well, you can get funding from night for three years, and then you've got to be on your own, and how's that going to work? Right. Well, the independent has always tapped into the local philanthropic community, uh, the big local community foundation, donations from readers. I say donations because all the content continues to be uh, freely available. The local foundation understands that ongoing support of local news is now part of their mission. And you think about it, you say, well, we're going to give you three years of startup money, and then you better be off and running. Well, where's the money supposed to come from? There's no advertising. Advertising is dead. The local nonprofit community has to understand that news has to be one of their missions. That actually would model the U.S. and global approaches to journalism. Isn't UNESCO and the State Department, they actually give funding just like they give funding to ag to journalism endeavors in other countries because they understand the importance of journalism to a healthy society. That's right. And so modeling that here would be great. That's right. And that's not to say that there isn't plenty of room for for for-profit and other models as well. But at least in these early stages of hyperlocal community news, uh, nonprofit, weirdly enough, seems to be where the money is. (laughs) That's great. I want to jump into more examples of that. But before we do that, there's been a lot of talk, especially in the early 2000s, about, oh, no, the new ad model of digital is going to kill journalism. But there's something else going on. You mentioned that the paper in New Haven has always done okay. There are a lot of papers across the country which would have continued to do okay, but for this phenomenon of hedge funds and corporate interests getting involved in news and snapping up local outlets, not to enhance the news product, but to profit take. I think it's a key to understanding what we need to do moving forward. We all know that there are some enormous technological challenges that have harmed local news greatly. Craigslist came along and took away virtually all the classified ads that newspapers had once offered, 40% of revenues. And it's not that newspapers weren't thinking in a fairly progressive way. I was around at the beginning and newspapers were talking about, you know, oh, we're gonna put the classifieds on the web We'll have video. It'll be searchable. It's going to be great. We're all going to be rich. (laughs) And it would have worked. But Craigslist gives them away. It's not that Craigslist came up with something smarter. It's that they give them away and you can't compete with free. Right. And Google and Facebook ended up taking most of the rest of the ad revenues. So that was the end of that. So there's absolutely no question that local newspapers had a huge challenge facing them, even if they had good local independent ownership. But they don't have good local independent ownership. 
Because starting in the 70s, corporate chains like Gannett came in and started acquiring newspapers by the bushel fill, cutting newsrooms, driving up profit margins, and leaving the newspapers in a weakened condition for when these other challenges began to come along. So you've got chain-owned newspapers trying to deal with the technological problems I mentioned, and they're not investing in the future. In fact, they're cutting their news products so much that they're driving away subscribers. Then the hedge funds start coming in. Uh, we've seen this lately with Alden Global Capital, which is certainly the worst newspaper owner on the planet, acquiring the nine major market dailies owned by Tribune Publishing, adding to the hundred that they already owned. And by the way, the day that we're recording this, Alden is already starting to cut oh, uh, the newsrooms. It breaks my heart. Uh, it's already begun. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Bellaria. We're talking with journalism industry expert Dan Kennedy about news deserts and ghost newspapers. Ellen Clegg's argument, my research partner and I, both argue that the technological challenges could be overcome in many cases if you had committed local ownership. And we've seen this with some of the regional papers, uh, the Boston Globe, the Minneapolis Star Tribune, the Seattle Times. All of them are doing reasonably well as for-profit newspapers that are making this transition from uh, an advertising-based revenue stream to a digital subscription-based revenue stream. But They've shown the patience to do it because they actually care about journalism and they're willing to settle for a break-even proposition or maybe a small profit rather than the 15 or 20 percent that Alden Global Capital might insist on. In fact, as far as anybody can tell, Alden just, it just seems to want to run these papers into the ground and then they'll walk away. So why should we care? What are the implications of, of a weekend local newspaper, a ghost newspaper, a news desert? What, what are the implications of this? Well, if you care about democracy at the local level, then you have to care about the fate of local news. And it doesn't have to be a newspaper. It can be a website. It can be a community radio station. But you have to care about the fate of local news. There have been a number of studies done that have shown what happens when communities lose any sort of reliable local news source. One very interesting finding is that municipal borrowing costs rise. The people who are lending the money have concluded that there's a higher likelihood of corruption. And so it's less likely that this is going to be a good investment. So they charge a little bit more interest. Wow. There was a study done just recently that attempted to measure levels of polarization in communities that had a quality news source and communities that didn't. And the results were kind of inconclusive, but they pointed toward less polarization in the communities that had reliable news. We see that nothing is working at the national level. The polarization is just out of control. 
And I'm not going to give a both sides thing here. It's mostly because of the right wing and the Republicans, which have just gone off the rails. And as a result, we can't even have an agreed on set of facts at the national level. And I think that if we're ever going to start to overcome this polarization, it really has to start at the local level. Uh, The old cliche is that there is not a Republican or a Democratic way to pick up the trash. Right. (laughs) I, I also think just as important is you could be a Biden voter and your neighbor could be a Trump voter and you have this heavy disagreement over national politics and you can barely talk about it. And yet you might find that you have common ground on local issues. You'd both like to see the toxic waste dump down the street cleaned up and turned into a park. Uh, You'd both like to see the school system improved. You'd both like to see the police department reformed, although you probably have very different ideas about how that reform ought to take place. Right. But you can still find a commonality about reform, the idea, and then talk about your disagreements, maybe. Exactly. And so when you have a solid, reliable local news source, you can do these things. And the local news source can act not just as a reporting outlet, but as a convener of the community conversation. If we're going to save this country, I think we have to start by rebuilding community life. Oh, I'm 100% in agreement with you. My question for you, because you've been immersed in this, Are we too late? I mean, I'm an optimist. It feels like we're in a really uh, scary spot with the polarization and the lack of information, the misinformation. I have a lot of pessimism about what's going on nationally. I think there were some structural problems that are almost impossible to overcome that have brought us to this place and can't easily be solved. I'm optimistic about community journalism. Rather than being too late, I think in a lot of ways we're just at the beginning. You know, when Tribune Publishing fell into the hands of Alden Global Media, uh, my sense was that this was the last opportunity to save some semblance of the old order. And with that gone, there's really nothing left now except to go about the hard work of trying to build a new independent media system. There's a lot of things going on. I've seen in community after community where there's a market failure of legacy media, entrepreneurial journalists do move in and fill at least some of the gap. Maybe what they lack in numbers, they make up for in dedication. I hope so anyway. I hope so as well. I really love the way you framed that. We're too late to save the legacy newspaper infrastructure that has been built up over the past couple of centuries. But we're not too late at all to save journalism and to save thus our healthy society if we do the work. As you talk, I was thinking of the Texas Tribune, which is a nonprofit um, doing some amazing work. And I also think of the beat-focused outlets uh, like Reveal, Center for Investigative Reporting, the Marshall Project. And then, of course, there are um, structural solutions, I know. One of the projects that we're going to be looking at in our next book is MinPost, probably one of the most venerable of the nonprofit community websites. The Star Tribune, the Legacy Daily, is now owned by a wealthy, locally based, independent business person who really is dedicated to journalism. 
So rather than simply focusing on MinPost uh, as a nonprofit alternative to these terrible uh, for-profit monsters, we have a situation where you have a nonprofit that's working and you also have a for-profit that's working because they've thrown off the shackles of uh, corporate chain ownership. So there you have right in one spot evidence that both can work and both can work side by side. Min Post is focusing on there's some longer form things we can do. There's some alternative types of things we can do. And that's what our mission is going to be. There's one project in a suburban community called Bedford, Massachusetts, that began as a volunteer site about 10 years ago. It's called the Bedford Citizen. It was three people from the League of Women Voters who were going to all these local meetings anyway. And they said, we don't like the way our Gatehouse Weekly, now a Gannett Weekly, is covering our town. Let's just start a website. And that's what they did. That would be interesting enough, but what makes them worth a closer look is that they've been very smart about getting grants, member contributions and all of that. And now they have paid journalism in addition to volunteer contributions. They have a paid managing editor. Uh, they have a paid part-time reporter. And I think they want to continue to evolve in that direction. Now, one of the things that we really want to look at with the Bedford Citizen is, is this model replicable in a community that is lower income and more diverse than Bedford, which is a very affluent community. But you kind of have to start with them because they're making it happen. And then think about how that could be applied to other communities as well. I appreciate these examples. I'm going to go back to the Minneapolis scenario where you have a civic-minded owner of a for-profit outlet and you have two outlets, so you have competition. So those are two really great ingredients. And here in California, in Half Moon Bay, we had a group of benevolent civic-minded investors who bought up that local paper to serve the community and the press Democrat in the North Bay. And that's wonderful, but you can't always rely on civic-minded owners. Are there some structural solutions out there or proposals that might work? Uh, there was a bill in front of Congress last year, I'm not sure if they've reintroduced it, uh, that would have uh, given tax credits to local advertisers for buying ads in a nonprofit paper and things like that. And I'm wondering, is there anything currently um, in the works structurally to help with the systemic uh, support of local journalism? I think that one of the reasons that it's been so difficult to chart a way forward for local journalism is that people always get it in their heads that there needs to be a structural solution. I don't think there is a structural solution. But let me talk a little bit about some of those ideas you just mentioned. They could help at the margins, uh, for sure. I know that in New Jersey, there's something called the New Jersey News Commons, I think it's called, where they have a pot of state money administered by an independent board. And I believe that local news organizations can apply for grants to fund specific reporting projects. That's a good idea. Uh, we should encourage all kinds of things like that. But ultimately, I, I think that these ideas really depend on the passion 
of individuals within a community. I tracked an effort in Haverhill, Massachusetts for 10 years to launch a cooperatively owned news site. Uh, They had a guru, they had a board, they did fundraising. Uh, What they lacked was anybody who was really passionate about coming forward and uh, being the editor of this site and taking the vision and running with it. So for years, they did all this planning, and then they never launched, and they finally shut down last year. You need that passion. Ten years of trying in Haverhill never caught on. Meanwhile, in Mendocino County, uh, a couple of young journalists left their Alden newspapers about five years ago and started a for-profit website called the Mendocino Voice. They are now converting to cooperative ownership, owned by members of the community. It will be owned by the staff. You brought up the League of Women Voters example. The uh, Flint water crisis was broken in large part because of an ACLU reporter. So you have actually not just nonprofit journalism, but you have nonprofits now, some of them doing journalism. And when I left Daily News, I went into kind of that space and helped create a nonprofit newsroom for a statewide governance organization here in California. And that is a trend, too, that I think is worthwhile. I remember 10 or 12 years ago writing a piece about the ACLU filing a bunch of Freedom of Information Act requests that were producing fantastic data for journalism. And journalists themselves were becoming reluctant to file FOIAs because, you know, it can take two or three years to respond sometime. And they figure by that point, I might be out of journalism or at the very least, I'll be a different news organization. So, yeah, I mean, anything that you can do to produce that kind of deep information that news organizations can pick up on, I think is fantastic. Leveraging a nonprofit to produce journalism, whether that nonprofit is really engaged in the news or has a different mission like the ACLU, uh, I think can really be helpful at a time like this. So now with all of this sort of shift and the legacy news space falling away, that's where the name recognition was. Like, I know that my local paper is X. I'm a San Francisco Chronicle, right? So now we've got all these new players. A lot of them are doing great work. There's also that aspect of the sort of pay-to-play papers. The New York Times just did an amazing piece. So you've got pay-to-play masquerading as journalism, but actually the content is sort of PR-based or partisan. How would you advise a consumer to navigate this? That's a very difficult problem because you do have these communities that are completely unserved, and all of a sudden it looks like a website has popped up Uh, that is providing them with a little bit of local news, and it really turns out to be Republican propaganda, and in a few cases, Democratic propaganda. I think one of the biggest problems with ghost newspapers is that they're in the way. They make it difficult for somebody to start something new because, well, we still have the, the Smithville Republican Democrat. Why do we need this new thing? And they're not grabbing onto the fact that there's nothing in the Smithfield Republican Democrat. That, I think, gives an opportunity for these pink slime sites to come into view because nobody wants to take the risk of starting a legitimate news site when they have to compete with the hedge fund that owns 
the local paper. But the pink slime sites will come in and compete because they're taking political money for the specific purpose of doing that. I've taken a very optimistic tone, and I really haven't talked that much about things that I really legitimately worry about. The kinds of alternative new journalism projects that we've discussed are easier to launch in affluent, well-educated places, or at least in well-educated places. If you look at Penelope Abernathy's map of news deserts, so much of it is the rural middle of the country. I'm optimistic, but I think we've still got a long way to go before we can really solve this problem. Thank you to my guest, Dan Kennedy, professor in the School of Journalism at Northeastern University and a contributor to GBH News in Boston. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.